Can't wear the glasses. Check out that glare. One of the best parts about being a hockey fan is complaining about your team's choices. They make trades, they make decisions, they do things, and you pretend like it happened in just a singular moment. When really the NHL is more of a collection of decisions, a collection of moments that have implications further down the road. So let's go back to 1963, where in Montreal on June 5th, the very first NHL amateur draft was held. Prior to this, NHL teams sponsored clubs and used contracts, called A, B, or C contracts, to lock in commitments for players. By 1967, NHL President Clarence Campbell and Canadian Amateur Hockey Association President Fred Page agreed on a five-year deal where the NHL would pay for players drafted. Each player, they would pay about five dollars to $10,000. This would end the sponsorships and contracts and instead allow drafting of players based on teams' previous finish in the standings. The sponsorship and contract method of recruitment had been used from the early days of the NHL. The Montreal Canadiens purchased an entire league just to solidify their rights to Jean Bellavaux. This shift from the contracts to drafting as far as recruitment also coincided with the expansion of the NHL. In 1967, the NHL added six new teams, Los Angeles Kings, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Pittsburgh Penguins, the St. Louis Blues, the Minnesota North Stars, and the Oakland Seals. Side note, the original six teams are not the original six teams in the NHL, they are just the six teams who survived. The new draft method would even the playing field for these new teams, who did not have 50 years of recruitment infrastructure built already. And by the 1970s, general managers around the league began to try and figure out how to properly use or view these draft picks. Let's consider our current approach to drafting in today's NHL. Picks fall loosely into one of three categories. One, they're capital that you can use to trade and gain a player for a playoff run. Two, you can trade them up or down in exchange for other draft picks for a player that your scouting or recruitment network really want. And three, they can be used to trade for a specific player. We think of the trade for Corey Schneider, Kirby Doc, and Alex Dabrinkat. In the early days of the draft, expansion teams felt the need to get easily recognizable players onto their roster and often used the draft picks as the capital to do so. This built a whole new inefficiency into the world of the NHL. General managers wanted to have quality players on their team immediately and drafting them meant that they were too far off to be that immediate solution. Draft picks could be used to achieve relevancy by trading them for established veterans. If you had a good team with some players who were in the middle six of your team, but could be a leading goal scorer on another, why not trade them for the potential of a high draft pick? With that background, enter the Oakland Seals. The Golden Seals changed names and ownership with frequency in their early years. In the 10 years that they existed, they went by the California Seals, the Oakland Seals, the Bay Area Seals, but that was only for a few games, and then the California Golden Seals. The Seals flirted with relevance, but could never find a solid footing financially or on the ice. They did, however, make a lot of trades, and one of them goes into history as one of the greatest trade losses or victories in the history of the game. Had the Seals not traded away their 1971 first round pick, they likely would have gained the right to draft one of the greatest NHL players of all time, 
Instead, they ended up picking a player in 1970 who played zero games for them and 500 games split between the Bruins and the Canucks. At the same time, the Montreal Canadiens managed to gain a player who became not only part of their Dynasty Cup winning teams, but someone who became so ingrained into the culture and legacy of the historic franchise. While the player himself is worth knowing about, it's the circumstances that led up to the trade that really show us how in over their heads the entirety of the SEALs organization was, and how Montreal General Manager Sam Pollock was able to take advantage of a very bad situation of one organization to gain the rights to Guy Lafleur. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I stole a bunch of balloons from a two-year-old's birthday party. And this is Storytime Hockey. The 1969-1970 season was one of promise for the Golden Seals. The year prior, they had finished second in the NHL's newly formed West Division with a record of 29-36-11. Something to keep in mind when we look at the early years of post-expansion NHL is that the new teams were bad. The league placed all the new teams into the West Division and the pre-existing teams into the East. It went about as well as you would hope. For the most part, the established NHL teams beat up on the expansion franchises, and the St. Louis Blues ran away with the West, finishing 19 points ahead of the Seals. This is why the St. Louis Blues made the Stanley Cup Final for three years straight, only to lose, quite easily, to the Canadians and the Bruins. Following the 1969-70 season, Seals general manager Frank Selke, of former Montreal employment, hoped to contest for similar lofty results. Norm Ferguson had 34 goals in that year, Bill Hick, Ted Hampson, and Gary Jarrett had combined for 181 points on the first line. He had just added former Norris winner Harry Howell, despite the fact he had just had back surgery. The team seemed like it might be okay. And at the start of the year, hopes were high, or as high as they could be for an expansion team during this time frame. With all their success in the 68-69 season, the 69-70 season seems like it had some hope. But quite early in the season, their hopes crashed. The team played with a lack of urgency. They were complacent and they had chemistry issues. Coach Fred Glover began to really struggle with his bench after claiming that goalie Gary Smith had been lost in the woods and lost all the progress he had made over the previous year. Smith hit back by saying, quote, All Glover does is bum rap me. I'd rather he let me alone. I'd soon let one of the other guys play so I wouldn't take on the aggravation. I'm not that crazy about the game. If there was something else I could do, I'd rather do it. This is an important part to remember, both when we look at historical hockey as well as current day hockey. Hockey is just a job. The hockey community laughs every year that Phil Kessel returns to training camp and hasn't skated in two months. Even earlier in the history of the NHL, if we revisit our podcast on the 228th Battalion, Percy LeSueur decided to work as a recruitment officer in the First World War rather than play in the National Hockey Association. The Seals started the year 4-3-1, with most of their points coming from fellow expansion teams. The way they lost, though, that was the concern. A 6-0 loss to the Bruins in their third game, and a 5-0 loss to the Kings in their fifth. On November 7th, the team lost 8-1 to the Rangers at home. Gary Smith led in six goals in the first period. Selkie raked him in the media, saying that the four goals were bad, and they were on Smith himself. It was his fault. After tying the Flyers, they would then lose 8-3 to the Bruins on the road. 
The Seals would always win a game and then go on a losing streak of four or five or six games. By December 10th, they were 6, 16, and 4 and languishing well outside of being relevant. When teams are struggling, morale is low. There's things that can just break them for good. From December 12th to January 4th, a stretch of 23 days, the Seals only played on the road and they had an 18-day road trip within that stretch. They played both on Christmas Day in Philadelphia, as well as on New Year's Eve in Toronto. The team was kept away from their friends and family for the holidays, with players revealing to the media that they had sent their families to their hometowns to be with other family while they packed up their hockey equipment and hit the road. Even after this stretch of road games, they played one game at home on January 7th, and then had to play on the road again on the 10th and the 11th. And frustrations really were beginning to boil over. On December 19th, Carol Vadney had 26 penalty minutes in a 4-0 loss, but the game was really between he and Keith Magnuson, who had 24 penalty minutes of his own. At the end of the stretch, the Seals lost 6-3 to the Bruins on January 11th, and despite the normal scoreline, they were completely outclassed in this game. Glover said to the media the next day that he wasn't even going to tell the players when practice was. They could have, and should have, figured it out by that time of the year. He also noted that he didn't care if the players found out about the criticism in the newspapers. By the All-Star break, they were 9-25-7. By February 20th, they were 16-31-9, but they still stood a chance at a playoff spot. Don't forget, all the expansion teams, who were in the same division, were all very bad. Team leading scorer Earl Ingerfield played the rest of the season from this point on with a broken thumb. The Seals gave themselves a chance though with some of their play. From March 8th to April 4th, they went 6-4-3, including with a win over the Minnesota North Stars, who they were competing with for the last playoff spot. However, the final game of the year, they lost 4-1 to the Los Angeles Kings. They needed the Philadelphia Flyers to lose or tie to guarantee the Seals' final playoff spot. Now, the Flyers had started the year with real promise and looked like they were going to be a very good team, but they sputtered in the second half and finished the year on a 5-18-8 streak. They would lose to the Stars and put the Seals into the playoffs. Now, during this time, first would play third, second would play fourth. So the Seals, who were in fourth, drew the Pittsburgh Penguins. While the scorelines were close, the Seals were never really in it. They lost four straight, including a game four overtime off of a goal by Michel Briere. Hockey fans, it's finally time to hit the ice again, and thanks to DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. You're in for the season of a lifetime. New customers can bet $5 on any team and get $200 in free bets if they win. Don't forget that the very first game this NHL season is between the Sharks and the Predators, and they're actually playing in Prague in the O2 Arena on October 7th. The game's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, so if you're in the East like me, you know, Maybe we take an afternoon off work, throw a little bit of money down in the game, kick back, relax, and get ready for the new season. If that wasn't enough excitement, you can turn small bets into bigger payouts with same game parlays. Combine multiple bets like which team will win, how many goals will be scored, and more for your shot to win even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, bet $5 on any NHL team to win their game, and get $200 in free bets. If they do, 
That's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See the show notes for details. It's after this 1969-70 season that we had to take note and kind of collect everything. Like I said at the start of the podcast, these choices aren't made in a vacuum. They're a collection of events that inform our next decision. The team had been a total letdown from their expectations. There was complacency. Everything that happened next season happens within this context. Selkie felt that the team didn't show any pride. There was a stubbornness on the part of the players to accept the fact that they weren't going to overpower anybody. Carol Vadney had 212 penalty minutes, which was a quarter of the team total. And then two other players, Doug Roberts and Burt Marshall, each had 100. So three players had almost half the penalty minutes on the team. This is important because the mentality at the time was about overpowering the other team. The St. Louis Blues were finding success overpowering teams and pushing them around. Ed Snyder was throwing fits over the Flyers being hit and not being the toughest team around promising that it would never happen again, this mentality giving birth to the Broad Street Bullies. The Seals team was also aging. Multiple stars were over the age of 34. On top of all these letdowns, there was one other issue. Ownership was struggling. The Seals' ownership was in such trouble, they needed a judge to adjudicate. There was a team petition, there was undercutting from the Board of Governors, there was competing offers. Eventually what happened was the team was sold to baseball executive Charlie Finley, four and a half million dollars who in his first press conference said and quote i know absolutely nothing about hockey so with these failed expectations a new owner with this mentality of trying to toughen up and a disappointing year gm selkie needed to do something he brought in dennis hextall and gary croteau but more importantly he started to make some trades he traded his first round pick in 1971 along with francois lacombe for the first in the 1970 draft and Ernie Hick from the Montreal Canadiens. Lacombe had spent his entire year with the Providence Reds in the AHL, which is really a non-factor in this trade, but he would go on to have a successful WHA career. Selkie was banking on two things. One, he was going to get a player that could be of impact next year, and two, he wanted to regain a spot in the 1970 draft. They had already traded away that pick, fifth overall, to Montreal earlier, in exchange for a package of players that actually included Francois Lacombe. Now the player the Seals acquired was Ernie Hick. His brother Bill was already on the team. He had put up a successful year in the WHL with 29 goals in 65 games. He would also fare well for the Seals in his first year with 22 goals and 47 points. In that 1970 draft where they picked 10th, they would pick Chris Olofsson. The problem with getting back into the draft at 10th instead of 5th was that the value was selected ahead of that pick. Gilbert Perrault, Dale Talon, Reggie Leach, Rick McLeish, they went 1st to 4th. Daryl Sittler went 8th. And later in the draft, there was some quality there as well. Bob Kelly went 32nd, Jill Malosh went 70, and Mike Murphy went to 25. Sam Pollock, general manager of the Montreal Canadiens, fully believed that the Seals were going to fall back to the bottom of the league in 1970-71. He wanted a chance to pick first overall. He had enough exceptional players on his roster, as well as some additional ones. He could move players outside of his core in exchange for these picks. He wanted as many darts on the board as he could 
for the potential to pick a player named Guy Lafleur. He convinced Selkie that taking 23-year-old Hick and swapping the firsts would help the team on and off the ice. Off the ice, new owner Finley was shaking up some of the established hockey traditions. He was challenging how the team in the game was presented using some of his eccentric baseball antics. The Seals needed to be good on the ice to avoid the franchise as a whole being ridiculed. Pollock had negotiated similar swaps with Minnesota North Stars, the LA Kings, and the Blues. Now, Lafleur was not a secret. He was clearly an incredible talent. The year Pollock had traded for a chance to pick him, which would be Lafleur's draft minus one year, he had 103 goals, 67 assists, in 56 games with the Quebec Ramparts. This was the first year of the brand new Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, which featured 11 teams. The Ramparts would win the league that year, but lost the Eastern Canadian title to the Ontario Hockey Association Montreal Junior Canadians. In his draft year, he would score 130 goals with 209 points in 62 games. His impact on the league and the team was clear. The Ramparts went 54-7-1, and five of the top 10 scorers in the league were on the Ramparts. It was clear that Sam Pollock knew what he was talking about because the Seals were going to be awful in 1970-71. They started out the season under new owner Charlie Finlay with new jersey colors, a real-life seal on the ice, and names on the back of the jerseys. They also started out 0-7-2, getting outscored 33-14. New owner Finlay tried to renegotiate the contracts of management on the team. He tried to sign Bill Torrey, Fred Glover, and Frank Selkie to new contracts. His point of view was that he had purchased the team, not the contracts of the management of the team. And this fight got ugly very quickly as he tried to reduce their salaries drastically. Selkie, later on in life, would go on to say that his only regret was not taking his father's advice and turning down the manager's role with the Seals. Selkie left the team after being undercut in contract talks. He had been a huge part of this team's attempt at relevance. He was a massive name in the hockey community and he had served for years as an executive on, in the Montreal Canadiens franchise. After his stint with the Seals, he would move to Hockey Night in Canada in 1972 and would remain there for another 20 years. Bill Torrey was offered the GM role right after that, and he turned it down because it was actually more work for less pay. It got so bad between Torrey and Finley that he actually resigned during the second intermission of a 3-1 loss against the LA Kings in November 1970. Fred Glover was assigned the GM role in addition to his duties as coach. The players began to openly express their displeasure with the team and specifically Finley as owner. By late December, they were 11-19-2. Carol Vadney had been the face of the franchise and had gone to his third straight All-Star game, but without him, the team was pretty much a rudderless ship. He broke his thumb in late December and missed 18 games. On February 24th, he made his comeback and tore ligaments in his knee, and he missed the rest of the season. January to March, the team went 2-17-2. They lost with five or more goals against 12 times. They traded away Captain Ted Hampson. They lost all their games between February 24th and March 14th. Now, on top of being just a generally bad team, the injuries really started to mount up. Norm Ferguson separated his shoulder. Burt Marshall broke his wrist. Tony Featherstone had a concussion. Harry Howell, who had back surgery two years prior, re-injured his back. Joe Hardy had a wrist injury. Earl Ingerfield broke his kneecap. And that was on top of Carol Vadney's injuries. 
Attendance over the year dropped to 208,000, down from 246,000 paid admissions. In comparison, the St. Louis Blues led with over 700,000, not even in the same ballpark. New owner Finley struggled to manage the world of hockey, as it was so different from baseball. He clearly understood how the previous management, though, moving draft picks, had handicapped his abilities to ice a complete team. I cannot simply pay out big bonuses to land the best young talent as I did in baseball. I am limited to the amateur draft, and we, like many other expansion teams, had, before I came in, traded away years of number one picks for old players, and that was simply stupid. Finley's mismanagement of his staff and the previous years of trading draft picks weren't the only things playing against them. Pollock was all in trying to get Lafleur. Not only did he trade for the Seals pick, but he also traded players within the division to try and suppress the Seals' likelihood of success. He traded three players to the LA Kings during that time to bolster their squad, including Ralph Backstrom. In the end, this version of the California Golden Seals would finish 20-53-5. and five. They had 45 points, and they finished 7th place in the NHL's West Division. In the full league, they finished last place. They only had 199 goals, which was actually 13 out of the 14 teams. However, goals against was 320, and there they were definitely last. The Golden Seals' leading scorer was Dennis Hextall with 52 points. If we compare him to the rest of the league, we can tell that this wasn't really a year for the Golden Seals. Phil Esposito led the league with 152 points and, a, and 76 goals. Bobby Orr had 102 assists. The second last place team, the Detroit Red Wings, had 10 more points than the Golden Seals. The Seals were never in this season. Courtesy of finishing last in the NHL, the first overall pick was assigned to the California Golden Seals, which was the one that they had traded to the Montreal Canadiens. On June 10th, 1971, at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, Quebec, the first overall pick was Guy Lafleur to the Montreal Canadiens. It was a masterclass in management by Sam Pollock. It showed the desperation of the NHL expansion teams and specifically the Golden Seals. They were so desperate to achieve relevancy in the NHL. But it also shows us how connected everything in the NHL is. One disappointing season leads to trading draft picks that establishes one of the greatest players of the NHL into one of the greatest dynasties of all time. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan. And I can't believe it, but we actually have a sponsor now. That's pretty cool. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. If you can take a second to like, subscribe to our podcast, or leave a review, that would be amazing. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next episode.